when you're trying to carry something that is way too heavy, just put down that laundry basket. Put down whatever it is and give it to God and let Him be in control and not you. And when you stand up from saying that prayer and you've put that laundry basket down, don't pick it up again. Leave it there. Leave it with God. Let Him handle it. And you just do every day faithfully, and He will take care of it. Ken Higginbotham was given nine months to live after being diagnosed with an aggressive brain tumor at the young age of 33. He had a fantastic wife, two brand new daughters, and an amazing life ahead of him. Today, his wife Shan describes how, through this battle, God changed them all. Welcome to A Stronger Faith, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as everyday people share the experiences that change their faith. I'm your host, Stacy McCants, and we pray that God uses this conversation to move you toward Him. Today, Shan Higginbotham joins us to reveal the truths of how God moved in a remarkable experience of endurance that she believes is only possible through God's grace. Meet Shan Higginbotham. Shan Higginbotham, you have made the drive and taken the time to come up here and share with us a pretty remarkable story, one that when it first emerged in your life kind of shook things like like you can't imagine, uh, and then it took a turn that you couldn't anticipate either um, with you and Ken, your husband. Now, I knew Ken. I grew up in the same town. He's three, four years older than me, and in a small town like that, Ken, I, I just, you know this because you were married to him. <laughs> right. But um, he was like the athlete, and I was a little athlete too, and I I grew up playing every sport and grew up in an athletic family and coaches and everything else, but Ken Higginbotham was the real deal. And uh, all us little guys, he was the one that was playing little league and, and, you know, higher level baseballs that... I was one of those little kids on the with my fingers wrapped, wrapped around that fence watching him do his thing. And um, Yes, he was one of very few four-sport athletes at his high school. Yeah, just so uh, so talented and, and good-looking guy, and um, everybody knew him or, or wanted to know him and just extremely popular. But you didn't know him Correct. back in those days. Tell, tell me how you and Ken kind of met and got married and the whole deal. Well, um, we grew up only about 30 minutes apart, but because we kind of ran in different circles in high school, I had not met him. And then I went to a local junior college for two years and then transferred to a four-year college that he was attending. So about um, between my sophomore and junior year of college, I met him. And a funny story. One of his ball playing buddies was trying to fix him up with my sister, but he ended up with me <laughs> instead. So we don't I, want to get into I, the I know, details. I think of that. that's a good thing. <laughs> but um, yeah, we we dated, and and um, about a year later, got engaged, and about a year after that, we got married. We got married right after graduation, and you know, we just found it really remarkable that we had lived that close for so many years our whole entire lives and had not known each other. But yeah. 
It was a fun time. So it was a love right away, and between the time uh, you first met and to no. the time it wasn't, because <laughs> it's not a long time until you got married, right? No, um, he he was pretty pretty much set before I was. It took him a little bit of convincing, but yeah, it it happened pretty quickly. Okay. My mama said she knew the first time she met him that your, it was him. Your mom knew. Yes. When you didn't. Yes. <laughs> Mama's so she, no, don't so she says, yes. <laughs> so you got married just out of college? Is that we right? We did. We did. We graduated in June and got married in July. So straight out of college, you know, living on love in a little two-bedroom apartment and all that stuff. But, you know, you make it. And we were very active in our local church and, you know, just living life and having fun at that point. And, you know, you have big dreams when you're first married. And so that's how we started out. So um, you got a couple of daughters. Yes. When did that happen? They didn't come along until about five years into our marriage. We had a great five years that we got to travel and do and experience. You mentioned that he was an athlete. We traveled all over the United States with him playing softball competitively. And then... um, we had bought some land there in his hometown and built a house and the kids came shortly and two daughters about two years apart. You know, they were precious. They were beautiful. We had built the house and everything was great. And then what happened? Then the world changed. Yeah. Um, On our 10 year anniversary trip, he got really ill and we had traveled to North Carolina for that. And then we came home And he just kind of laid around and just really didn't feel good. And I had noticed a couple of things that were concerning to me. But, you know, he's young and healthy as a horse and never been sick a day in his life. And so you don't anticipate that something terrible is wrong. And um, it was vacation Bible week, vacation Bible school week, which is one of his favorite times. And he didn't feel well enough to go. So when he didn't feel well enough to go, I knew that we really, really had an issue. And so he went to our local doctor, and the local doctor could see something behind his eye. And so he sent him to our local eye doctor, and our local eye doctor confirmed that, yes, there was something behind his eye that they could see. How how did they see something behind his eye? You know how the doctor takes his pen light and shines it into your eye? If they shine it into the white of your eye, they can actually see the back of your eyeball and like where the nerves are and where all of this, these, how your eye is attaching to the optic nerve and all of that. And there was something blocking their view. So they knew there was something behind his eye. So it was right there. Yes. Yes. They sent us immediately to a specialist in Mobile, and they did a CAT scan and determined that he had a brain tumor on his frontal lobe right behind his left eye. And it was about the size they determined between a lemon and an orange. It was actually very significant. And it was causing him issues because it had gotten so large in that one hemisphere that it was pressing over into the other hemisphere and causing him to have issues with memory and vision and that sort of thing. And you had seen no other signs until this time? Um, 
we had not seen signs immediately. He was playing in a softball game in Jackson, and he came off of the field and sat down beside me on the bleachers and said, I see three of everything. Mm. And I said, what? And he said, I see three of everything. And, you know, we we joked around all the time. I said, well, catch the ball that's in the middle. <laughs> and he said, well, that's what I'm doing. And so we didn't think anything about it. And, um, you know, looking back, I can see things mm-hmm. that were signs that the doctors say were signs. But like I said, you're not looking for those. Yeah. And um, he would repeat things and he wouldn't remember that whole discussions that we had had. And I would look at him and go, are you messing with me? Or do you really not remember that conversation we just had? And and he really would not remember. And um, on our trip, our anniversary trip that I mentioned, when I knew something was bad, he would get to like a four-way stop and not know which way to go. Mm. And he was typical Southern man driver. Sorry if that offends everybody. Yeah, you know, know he that. did not... Yeah. He did not ever let me drive because he was the direction person. And when he couldn't tell me which way to go and I had to say, um, we need to go left, it it was pretty concerning. Yeah. In hindsight, you're saying that you can see some things that wouldn't have caused you to go to the doctor necessarily until it got into some more severe place. Yes. We saw eight different doctors that day. Because they kept calling in this guy and that guy and doing all of these assessments of him. And um, they told us we had to go straight into the hospital that night. We could not even go home. And that that was so, so stressful for me as a, a young mother because I had left my two babies with my sister-in-law with just, you know, a couple of diapers and a couple of bottles. I had a... Our oldest daughter had just turned four, and our baby was 15 months old. And so mm. I, was, I was stressed, to say the least. Sure. So we, we stayed in the hospital for several days. They gave him things to try to reduce some swelling before they wanted to do surgery. And they did his surgery a couple of days later. And Ken felt great after the surgery. He immediately could remember things, and we were like, "This, it, this is going to be nothing." But the the doctor came back in on the day we were getting ready to go. Actually, he had gotten dressed. He was sitting on the edge of the bed. He's laughing, cutting up, and um, the doctor came in and said, "Before you go, we need to talk about the pathology report." And he said, "It is an astrocytoma on a scale of." one to four with four being the worst it's a three and people don't survive and the average lifespan is six months but you're so young and healthy you probably have nine and I think I pretty much stopped breathing I really was sitting in the corner having a meltdown like it wasn't registering so you had gone we had had surgery here, and they removed it, or not? Yes, they they had, they had removed this, and you guys are packing up to go home, correct. thinking that this is going to be okay. Correct. And he comes back and says nine months max. Yes. 
I can't imagine. I know. <laughs> I, I wish I couldn't imagine. Um, I really, really honestly think I didn't breathe for a little while. And um, a friend of mine, cousin actually, had come to visit us in the hospital. And she was sitting beside me and she looked at me and said, are you okay? And I said, no, no, I'm not. I have two babies. And this man just said, my husband's going to be dead in nine months. And we were, we were devastated. I I can't express to you how that feels. I really, really can't. So how did you (laughs) sort of absorb this news? Um, I don't think I absorbed it right away. Um, We came home. They had a guy come in to talk to us about chemo treatments and radiation options and to go home. He said, go home and get some rest and come back and we'll start the chemo and radiation and all that sort of thing. And, and I was just listening and not, not really fully comprehending. I'm like, you know, I, I can't be needing to know this information, but, um, we did kind of try to gather our wits about us and we came home, but, um, in a small town, Word travels very fast. So as soon as we got home, people started coming. It's what they do. They bring food. They knew we had small children. They were bringing diapers. And and I really don't know for a couple of days how my kids got fed and bathed and that sort of thing. I really do not even remember because I was just in a fog. So I can say that I immediately didn't turn to God. I really was just walking around thinking, you know, this cannot be happening. Well, you're also, I'm assuming, early 30s. Yes. Ken was 33 the week he was diagnosed, but it was his birthday week. So he turned 34 in the hospital. I was 32. So, yes, we were very young. And when they first told us that, it was a brain tumor. Before we knew that it was going to be bad, when we thought that it could just be a tumor and let's take it out and we're going to be fine. During the time they were giving him the medicines to try to sh- shrink the swelling, he was sleeping a lot. So I walked the halls of the hospital because I did not sleep. And I remember finding this big picture window in the hospital And I crawled up into that window. It's like two o'clock in the morning. And I was just looking up to the stars. And I remember saying, God, I can't do this. I don't know what you're doing, but I cannot raise my two children by myself. I cannot. And um, that's about all I remember praying. I don't remember praying for peace or healing or any of that. I just told God I couldn't do this. I didn't know what he had going on, but I couldn't do it. And if you think God has a sense of humor, I really think he was probably looking down at me going, oh, you just wait. (laughs) Mm. Because he had quite a lot planned for me. But at that point, I wasn't ready for it. No. I'm sure that this, the stun of finding something like that out and then like waking up the next day and it's, it's not a joke. Right. It, it wasn't a dream. It really was happening. It wasn't happening. a dream, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know at what point you 
turn to, all right, here's what we're going to start doing. Because, you know, I feel like any time you get some sort of really shocking or devastating news, this happened, to, you know, we've talked about it on this podcast a couple of times. It's a blow. I mean, yes. it, it, it like knocks the wind out of you Absolutely. to say the least. Or it's a cut, you know, that requires the first thing you don't need to carry on in that state right you 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 can't carry on when you have no breath first thing you got to do is you got to stop and get your breath or you got to stop and like tend to leading for a while until you're like okay i've got my wits about me again now Mm -hmm. we begin to take steps and faith has to come in at some point there and i don't even know I mean, for some people, if it comes in then, I don't know where that process, that, that step is. Well, I was raised in church. I had a very strong foundation of faith. We lived just a mi- less than a mile from my church. So I grew up there. I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, Wednesday night, any time in between that anything was going on. I was raised by two wonderful Christian parents. I came to know Christ personally at a fairly young age and had not had any reason to fully trust God in a way that that I do now. And people have often said, well, you know, I don't know how you did what you did. Well, it, it wasn't me. And I feel like if I had not had that firm foundation, I probably would not have handled it the way that I did. But having that firm foundation allowed me to, like you said, get back up like, okay, I kind of have my wits about me now. And I think this is what needs to happen. But you being familiar with my husband, he was a, a math teacher, very analytically minded. He came home with the idea of he had to make sure that we were taken care of. He made sure the insurance was in order. He made sure all of these papers were done. And he started with, I want this to be taken care of and you need to do this. And, and I'm just like, no, Well, yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to plan for the end. I would la- layer on to what you described competitive. Oh, yes. As well. And so yes. as a competitor, you want to somehow win. Right. You know he was, saying? and he was a coach at our local high school. And you bringing that up bring as, is another funny story. At that point in time, when I was in the corner having a meltdown the day he was diagnosed, I don't think he even blinked listening to the doctor. And when the doctor finished, he said, well, what's the longest anyone has ever lived? And I think the doctor was taken aback a little. And he said, well, I don't know. We will have to look that up. And Ken said, well, you've you find out what it is because I'm going to beat it. And that was his mentality. Um, You know, get my little ducks in a row and then we're going to work on it. And so for the first few days, like I said, we, I just kind of went through the motions and the one day in particular that I will never, ever, ever forget. um, I was doing laundry and we had folded the clothes. The, uh, my daughter was helping me and we put them all in the clothes basket and I picked up the clothes basket to take all of the clothes to the rooms where I needed to put them away. And I walked into the bedroom and all of a sudden 
that clothes basket just felt so, so heavy. And I just set it down in the floor and just started crying and praying. And I said, God, I can't do this. But this time the prayer was different than the prayer in the hospital because I said, I can't do it. So you've got to. I said, God, you've got to take this. You've got to lead us. You've got to show me what we need to do because I can't do it. And it's it's a piece like no one can explain if you've not been there. And I felt God's peace. I knew it was going to be okay. If my husband was going to pass away, then that was God's plan and I was going to be okay. If he was going to beat this, then we were going to be okay as well. I knew whatever was coming next was going to be okay because God has a plan. We don't always understand it, but he had a plan. And so I stood up from the floor with my laundry basket and just instantly knew that we were going to be okay. And that's really hard to make people understand if they haven't been there. But um, but it, it's it's true. We I, He and I both just had an unbelievable peace through all of this. So that happened in that moment of prayer. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this was an experience where you, you felt so overwhelmed that the laundry basket was suddenly too heavy. Yes, overwhelmed. We as mothers, I think, and wives, we have that caretaker mentality, and we're supposed to be able to fix it. We're supposed to make our children feel better. We're supposed to provide, you know, for our husbands and be the nurturer. And I couldn't fix any of it. I couldn't make my children feel better. I couldn't heal my husband. I couldn't give him some Tylenol and put him to bed. That wasn't going to work. So I I was completely overwhelmed. I knew that there was nothing that I was going to be able to do in my strength that was going to make anything different. And so I had to turn it all over to God. So when you said that prayer and you got up and you felt this peace, and that's a word that's come through a lot of these discussions, how did it change what your approach was on a daily basis? Um, my prayer life became at and I don't I say prayer life because it wasn't prayer time. It became prayer life. I had I had read in the Bible because I have read the Bible cover to cover, but I have read in there about praying without ceasing. And I thought, well how can you do that? You can't really do that. You know, in in my lifetime I would get up in the morning and say prayer or before I went to bed at night, say prayer, and honestly didn't really think about it a whole lot during the day. But now my prayer time is my prayer life because throughout the day I'm praying, I'm talking to God. If something comes up, just start talking right there to God. He is not only someone that I just take cares to. He's someone that I literally talk to. Um, We recently sang a song at my church that was called the goodness of God. And in there it talks about knowing God as a father, but also knowing God as a friend. And, and I think that's more where my prayer life is right now, because just like you would want to share things with a friend, you have to have that kind of relationship with Christ. If, if you're going to have to, if you're going to continue that peace. I understand what you say or I understand what you mean when you say um, 
sort of this constant prayer, prayer without ceasing. I think of it like how I used to pray would be like getting on a Zoom call, right? You, right. You, there's a process, <laughs> you got to get ready, and you're probably going to need to brush your hair because it's right. Zoom, at least wear a decent shirt. And, right. you know, there's a time for it, and, and then it's over, and it's like, whoo, now I can get on right. about my day. Absolutely. But once we realize that God is not a being that exists somewhere else, but we realize that he's literally closer to us than we are to ourselves. Right. He, he lives inside of us constantly. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Right. But if he is, if he's not a Zoom call, but a person who is literally in your presence right next to you 24-7, that dialogue is way different than the dialogue on a Zoom call. Right. And I see it like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I consider him as I'm driving down the road. Right. As and, and it's not that I'm like going into some formal prayer. Right. It's just relationship. Mm-hmm. It's just relationship. It's not a Zoom call. It's, a, it's an ongoing relationship where we... We converse, and I listen. I try to listen in for him as much as I I tell him things. And I think that's that's a key because you know, like I said, being honest about how my prayer life was, you you have this list. You go down your list. You you know, God give them peace. God heal them. God do this. God do that. Amen. And there was never a time of listening for what he wanted to tell me. Mm-hmm. And so I had to to really focus on that. And, you know, it would be like, you know, God, I don't know what we're going to do about the, all these radiation treatments coming up, but I'm going to need you to tell me. And so then there were times that you just have to sit and you just need to listen because he will lead you where he wants you to go. But you got to be listening. It's hard to hear when you're talking. <laughs> it, it is. It? <laughs> I tell my kids that in my class all the time. You can't hear me if you're talking. Well, and it's true, but as grown-ups, we should consider that in our own prayer life, right? Yes. It, it, we need to talk about things. We need to express. Mm-hmm. He wants us to tell him things. He's like a father in that regard. Right. Bring those things to me. I'd love for you to talk about things that you're uncomfortable about, but... You got you got to stop every now right. and then and take a listen too, because mm-hmm. I can help you here. Right. So that's a that's a powerful spiritual insight, and it sounds like something that's that you uh, discovered. Yes, the, the, absolutely. The concept of of constant prayer versus a place that I carve out a section of my day. Right. I go down. I. I I, I may finish my list, but sometimes I'm too busy, and it's like, hey, God, right. here's my list. 7 to 7.30 in the morning. I'm you know, my that's list it. of things, right. and i, I got to run, right? So it began to change your prayer it did. life. It did. How did it change your day? Oh, well, physically, the days changed immediately. Like I said, we had two small children. He and I were both teaching school. Um, amazingly, this happened during the summer. So neither of us were working. We were off for the summer. So that kind of helped us figure out what we needed to do and get in a groove of what our new normal was going to be. And um, 
we decided to take him to MD Anderson, which is a cancer treatment hospital, special specialty hospital in Houston. And when we got out there, they wanted to do another MRI just to see how things looked after the surgery in Mobile. And they discovered that there was still tumor there. So three weeks to the day later, they opened Ken back up in the same mm. incision and went in and did a more a more intricate surgery, a more detailed surgery, and to remove the rest of it. And from there, then they started as a plan. And he had radiation treatments for several months. He had to do 34 treatments from Monday through Thursday every day. So we were traveling about an hour and a half to, because like I said, we were small town USA and we didn't have a treatment facility near us. So we had to travel and um, he became tired. You know, the, the treatments wore him down and he had nausea, of course. And after the radiation, we did chemo and it was a long, long process of doctor after doctor after doctor. And we felt like that's basically all we were doing, but it was our new normal. And um, he really stressed the idea that he wanted the girls to think that that this was normal. So we tried to really focus on continuing to go to church, continuing to go to school once school started again. And, um, you know, continuing what what life was was supposed to be, what we thought was supposed to be. You know, the girls had little dance recitals. And, you know, we did all the normal things that people do. But um, what Ken and I had planned for our future as young 30-year-old parents suddenly was not important. I realized that it was our plan. It's what Ken and I wanted from life. And apparently God had another plan. And you kind of have to switch gears when you realize that you're not in control anymore and your plan's not going to work out. So how did you feel about that? I mean, because you oh, had a plan and it was yeah. a beautiful thing. And yes. I mean, you married you married the good-looking, athletic, did. successful man. Two beautiful kids. Build a nice house. Yep. Beautiful kids. You're set up. You're doing exactly what you want to do. And all right. of a sudden, yeah. d- did you feel robbed? Um, of that, of that plan. It's kind of hard to explain. I don't know that robbed is a good word. I kind of felt like, like my children were robbed. I was really, really worried about them. I had a super close relationship with my dad and Ken just absolutely adored his children. And as we got further into all of the, um, the treatments that continued to make him more and more tired and sick and lethargic and not being able to do with him, I really kind of questioned why God would do this and not allow them to have the same relationship with their father that I, that I really hoped my kids would have. You know, if we didn't get to build the pond behind our house, I I was going to be okay with that. I was just really anxious about what we were going to do. Because the future was still very unclear. Um, Because, you know, they were still saying that 
this type of tumor. Well, when we got to Houston, they did upgrade it from an astrocytoma to a glioblastoma, which is extremely aggressive. Yeah. And they said it was not a three, it was a four. And I was, oh, yay. Um, but yeah, they they said that, that they anticipated he would have longer than nine months after the second surgery, but they were not really promising of a whole lot more than that. They said that it usually came back after a year or so, um, that most people did not live past three years. So, you know, we we had hoped that he was going to live a little longer, but you still have that in the back of your head that it's going to come back and it's going to get him. And, you know, that that's still not enough time for me. So we were still struggling with the possibility, the very real possibility that he would die very soon. And so that still is just unnerving and just the the idea that I don't know what to expect. Yeah. I, I, You know, we're human. We like to be in control. I like to know I'm, I was a planner. He was a planner. You know, I like to know what's coming over the next five years. You know, we had a five-year plan. You got a 10-year plan. And they were telling us that we probably weren't going to have even three years. So I don't know that I felt robbed, but I felt very afraid because I didn't know what the future held. It's a scary thing. Yeah. How was Ken's faith during this time? <laughs> um, like you said, Ken was super competitive, yeah. and he was very strong, and he's very strong-willed. And men and women are so different. I know that will be a shock to the listeners out there. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a talker. I expressed my emotions. I expressed my feelings. And, and he did not very much. And I asked him one time, I said, look, I'm having meltdowns every other day, and you're just like a rock. I don't understand it. And he said, well, I've talked to God about it. He knows my heart, and and that's all that needs to happen. He really honestly felt like I've told God, God knows my heart, God's got this, and that's it. So, and, and people really, people ask me all the time, was he really solid like that all the time? And I said, yes, if he broke down ever, if he doubted God ever, or if he lashed out at God ever, he did it in complete, um, solitude because I never saw it. And I've, I've got to be the closest person to him other than, than God, but I never saw it. He never wavered wavered even once in his faith. There is prayer that happens when a community finds out that a thing like this is going on. And you see it on social media all the time. I see it every time that there's something and everybody goes uh, in on prayer and, and rightfully so. Many of those prayers are for a miracle. Correct. Complete healing. Yes. I hear it all the time. That's, yes. That, that is a term that is used quite frequently. When Jesus prayed, he asked that his cup be passed from him as well. Yes. But he got to a point in the prayer where he said, not my will, but yours 
Now, Scripture tells us, it seems to indicate at least anyway, that he battled this two or three times because he would come back. Disciples are asleep. He's like, guys, you guys are asleep again? What's up? And then he would go back and and repray this same thing, agonizing over it so much that he, you know, sweat blood. But that after rocking this vending machine a few times, it feels like he settled with, okay, mm-hmm. this isn't going to turn out the way I'm, I started this prayer asking you. Let's do your will. Right. He got him up and said, come on, guys, it's time to get started. Right. With this part of it. Mm-hmm. Did you guys pray that way? Um, I think... That that would be a real good way to explain how Ken faced this. Um, he he knew that his life was going to be different from then on. He was going to not be the strong athlete, complete, physically fit. You know, he never had a headache a day in his life until the brain tumor, and so. His ability to be strong physically and mentally was about to be tested. But like you said, he just prayed, you know, God, this is what I want, but it's probably not going to end up the way I want. So let's do this. And he really is like you said, you know, I'm going to do what I can day to day to day. And he said, we'll get up and we'll do it today. And tomorrow we're going to do the same thing. And that's really the way he approached it. And if God was going to heal him, then that was going to be great. If God didn't heal him, he was ready. He was prepared. Mm-hmm. He was ready for whatever was about to come. And he, he was just a rock through the whole thing. And, you know, like I said, people ask me all the time, he's, he's not smiling and cutting up and all like that at home, is he? I said, yes, yes, he is. We were both, we were both just covered with a spirit of peace. Did you guys talk about the spiritual side of this much? No. And, and people may find that hard to believe as well. But he, he was not a talker. He did not share his emotions about being sick, we we just didn't. He said, I want to be normal. I want to feel normal. So we talked about who was going to win the ball game on Friday night. We talked about, you know, his kids, my kids. When I say my kids, I'm talking about my school kids and his school kids. Yeah. You know, he wanted to do the normal things. And I told my kids I'd give them a shout out. So shout out to all my kids at school. <laughs> kids are at... Clark Prep. Clark Prep. Yep. Clark Prep Preparatory School in go. Grove Hill, Alabama. <laughs> um, but no, he didn't want to talk about it a lot. And and that's what he told me one day. He's like, I talked to God about it. So he, he didn't feel like he had talked to me about it a whole lot. How did you, you talked about getting this, you both getting this peace. How did you maintain that? Because I would think that there's lots of times that you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and it's like, no. Yes. Yes. Right. And, and and there's gotta be times where you like backed off of that and, and did that peace would try to dissolve a little bit. Well, yes. When I say that I had peace 
that does not mean that we, I did not have really, really, really bad days. Yeah. Um, especially as the girls got older and Ken started requiring more and more care. And I felt so pulled in so many different directions and so overwhelmed. You know, I would just have to find a place and just cry and just cry out. And, you know, God, I know you're there, but but I'm drowning here. And so I, I would cry for a while <laughs> and get that peace back and then then go back and hit it again. You know, just do what you got to do, um, especially when the girls were like young teenagers. You know, I would look at them during a specifically bad time and I would say, OK, I am coming back. I promise I'm coming back, but I've got to go walk the block. I've got to go sit at the park. I've got to go sit in my dark classroom. I, I, I got to have some me and God time. And um, and they'd go, okay, mom. <laughs> so, you know, they knew. They knew when I got to that point that, that I had to retreat. And um, I did that often. <laughs> but you But you have to go back. You have to continue to give it to God. Because... The war- we live in a cruel world. We live in a sinful world. And so it's going to continue to bombard you. So if you don't continue to give your problems to God, they're going to build up on you again. And so I did have those bad days. And so, you know, I and like I said, prayer became constant to me. Prayer became praying without ceasing. And luckily, we were so blessed to be surrounded by godly family and friends and our church family and anytime I thought you know I just cannot do this again tomorrow somebody's going to pop up you know with a meal and I think oh good (laughs) family's going to be fed because I don't have to today um and and God just provided but like I said you're going to be overwhelmed at times but you just have to keep giving it to God I think that is a a significant spiritual truth. And Jesus reflected that or shared that when he taught us in the Lord's prayer, what we ask for. And one of those things is give us this day, our daily bread is a reminder that you can't get fed occasionally. Right. And be sustained. It is an ongoing thing. We need to be spiritually fed just like we need to be physically fed. Mm-hmm. And I, I asked the question of how, how do you sustain that peace? And as you're s- describing that, I'm like, of course. <laughs> it, has to be, it has to be going back to the table mm-hmm. all the time. Every day. And when you don't for a while, it builds up such that y- you need to— you need some to block off some time. And, you know, I, I like to try to have sort of big prayer time on occasion as well, like lengthy, much more than a normal right. prayer. And I think that's a good thing to do. It's kind of like Thanksgiving. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, a big meal. Yeah. But, but that's an important point, I think, to make that sustaining that peace, um, a critical element of sustaining that peace is consistent feeding, is right. consistent time with God, um, not just occasional. And uh, it sounds like that's what you did. That's the only thing. Right. 
And people need to understand there is a huge difference between joy and happiness. Oh, yeah. Um, I had joy through this whole process. I feel like our household was filled with joy through this entire process. But was I happy every day? No, not at all. Was Ken happy every day? Absolutely not. Um, It wasn't a happy thing we were going through. But you can have joy and you can have peace and you can have contentment knowing that everything you're going through is going to have a purpose eventually. I may never know it. I may never know the whole purpose that God would have us go through this. But um, but continual feeding, yeah, continual prayer, reading the Bible. And reading the Bible changed because, you know, like I said, I've read the Bible through cover to cover several times. And when I was younger, it would be like this daily Bible reading plan. Today we have to read this many chapters and, and that sort of thing and mark them off when I do. And And now reading the Bible is applying it to me. Mm-hmm. God wrote this directly to me. He wrote this directly to you. And no matter what I'm feeling, if I'm feeling depressed, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, if I'm feeling sad, no matter what it is, I can go to that book and I can find something that's going to give me peace. Yeah. You stop reading it and yes. you start looking for truth yes, in there. Absolutely. And, and because if, if, there is this author of life who like created time and space and, and um, love and peace and happiness. And he promises that for us, he's buried in this book, how it works. And you kind of want to peel back. It's like, Oh my gosh, that's what I do. (laughs) Yes. You start looking for truth, right? Yep. You do. You You don't just read. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. Yes. A huge difference now. (laughs) That's great. So he was given nine months. Yes. Then it stretched maybe a year or two or whatever. Right. But it sounds like where you are right now, we're, we're, we're a few years into this thing. Yes, we did. We made it. We, we did MRIs routinely. They first did one in um, one-month intervals because it was so likely to come back. Yeah. They wanted to catch it early when it came back. And the, our oncologist kept saying, when it comes back, we'll do this. And when it comes back, we'll be able to do this. And so after several trips, I finally said, why do you always say when? He said, because it always comes back. And I thought, hmm. And I actually told him in the doctor's office, I said, I would like for you to start saying if. I said, you don't know what God has planned. And he kind of laughed. And he said, well, if y'all get to five years then maybe we'll start saying if. And I said, okay, you've got a deal. And so the MRI stretched out to every three months, then every six months, and then every year. And before we knew it, we were at that five-year mark. And so we went back to Houston. We had our five-year MRI, and the oncologist came in just grinning, and I said, it's not there, is it? He said, it's not there. And I said, we're at five years. He said, indeed, we are. So, um from then on, he started saying if, and Ken was kind of like the poster child out at MD Anderson, and they they wanted to share his story and, and talk to other doctors and say, have you seen this guy? Because it really, really was um, 
unheard of almost. It's like less than 1% of the people with the GBM actually live five years. And eight years was minuscule and 10 years was almost unheard of. Yeah. And so we got to five years and thought that maybe life was about to get back to normal. And I was wrong again. Mm. (laughs) God had more in store. So for that first five years, life was pretty much the same? Yeah. Similar? Yeah. Um, Ken still acted like Ken. Yeah. Um, You know, he was just, like I said, a little tired, a little sluggish. We didn't play as much ball, but he would still get out, you know, and and golf with his dad or, you know, he, he still felt good enough to do normal things. And mentally, he was still Ken. He still taught his classes. He taught at our local middle school and coached um, for years at the local high school where he, he graduated. And for, I'd say, about five years, things really were a new normal for us. Yes, he had had treatments, and yes, he had lost his hair, but but we were still good. And then about around that time, um, they did spot something on the MRI and decided that it was necrosis, which means the brain that he had left was actually dying. Mm. And they diagnosed him with something called radiation-induced brain injury, which had started a process of retrogression. And that meant... They told me he was going to go backwards and become like a child rather than progressing and becoming like an adult. And I thought, well, okay, that doesn't sound so bad. And um, I said, well, how far back are we going to go? And he said, we can't answer that because it's different in everyone. And I said, well, okay. And I was so not prepared for the next five years. Um, very, very slowly, I watched this man that was super intelligent, um, super fun-loving, great personality, become someone totally different. He um, had to stop driving because he could not make the decisions as to which way to go. He would not remember where he was supposed to be going. Um So we had to take the truck keys, which he still fussed at me about for years after that because it was my fault. Um, And um, he started stumbling. He started having trouble remembering anything around the house. He could not um, do little things like open a frozen dinner and heat it in the microwave. I mean, simple, simple tasks became things that he could not do. Now, this was not overnight. This was a very long, drawn-out, painful thing to watch. I mean, it literally went all the way back to a very young child-acting person. He would hide things from me, um, you know, and tell me stories and, and, and say things and then laugh like and it he just it was just really hard to watch him become someone else. Yeah, I can't imagine what that had to be like on a on a daily basis. I think it would be you know, initially you think that's pretty taxing just 
the additional work I think it creates, but to love someone and watch them turn into someone that's just the opposite of who they were. Yes. And, and, and for it to happen in front of his daughters and family, cause it's a close community. How, how did, how did your girls handle that? Um, when the girls were young, I don't know, you know, five, six, seven, eight, around in that age bracket, I don't think they even realized that anything was different at our house than anyone else's. Because to them, he got sick so early in their lives, it was just normal. You know, dad having no hair was normal. Um, dad having to go to all these doctors was, was normal. Um, and they really didn't think of it as anything out of the ordinary. And then when they became teenagers and the more you, you know, you're going to other people's houses and they're coming to your house and all their friends are hanging out. And um, Ken was, I would say, in his teenager stage about the same time they were. And I really thought I was going to have to kill them all. (laughs) But um, they both handled it um, in, in different ways, but in their own way. One was more like me, and she was real chatty, and she would talk about how it made her feel. And the youngest one was more like him, and she bottled everything up and didn't want to talk about it. And um, we went through some difficult times, especially in their teenage years, of them trying to adjust to the fact that I I don't have a a daddy, a normal daddy like my friends have. And um, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, but they both came to a saving knowledge of Jesus at an early age, and they would see me and him depending on God and knowing that that's where our strength came from for everything we were going through. And they have turned out remarkably well. And, um, you know, they they were loving. They were supportive. They still are. And when I had first started talking to you about coming and doing this. I prayed for God to give me some scripture that that I would share. And I was drawn to the to the verses in Matthew that talks about building on a firm foundation and having something to stand on when the storms of life blow your way. And I know that I had that. Um, Ken came to a saving knowledge while we were in college and, and gave his heart to Jesus then. So I know he had a, a, a foundation in Jesus. And I'm hoping that, you know, I, I don't hope bad things happen to them, but I know it will because we have, we live in this world where we're going to be faced with problems all the time. And I'm hoping that they have that same firm foundation now, that when storms blow, through their lives and their families and their marriages that they're going to have that firm foundation to stand on as well. That's a really important parable. And the interesting thing about that is both the house on the sand without the foundation and the house on the rock with the foundation, both have to endure. Absolutely. Wind and storm, right? We're not guaranteed the ideal life because we live the spiritual life and we have a great foundation. The Bible actually tells us we're going to have trouble. Yeah. We are not immune just because we're Christians. 
And we're going to be tested as Christians. We're going to go through trials and how we react to them is such a statement to everyone else about how the Christian life should be lived. And I think it's our job as Christians to share with the world that God has brought us through something because those nuggets may be just what someone else needs to hear to give them hope and to give them encouragement to get through something they're going through. So I think that's a huge responsibility for us. It it is. And to be examples of people who are faithful to God when it doesn't turn out the way we prayed. Right. It's not an indictment on us. It's an opportunity for us to demonstrate our faith to him, knowing that he is faithful to us and he is, um, that the end works out in our favor. Right. And that's hard. That's hard to see. When, it is. When you're watching your husband become somebody, when his life is being taken away from right. him. And he's not just going to pass, but he has to go through this um, removal of dignity. Right. Not only did we go through all of those issues, but um, he was at home because he had to quit teaching. He quit teaching in 2006. And so he was at home. And it got to where I could not trust him to be home alone all day. And wonderful people from our church volunteered to take rotations and go by and check on him every day, which was fabulous because then I could go to work and not really worry because somebody was going to check on him. And then um, it got progressively much worse. And I eventually had to hire someone to stay with him the whole time that I was at work. And like you said, he lost all of his dignity. He lost his ability to walk and his ability to feed himself, mm. um, his ability to go to the restroom by himself, everything. And um, eventually he, he, had, he had a fall that broke his arm and they could not do surgery on it because of the location and the way that it broke. So it was just strapped to him. And during that time he was in the hospital bed in our living room and he never got out of that bed Mm. that it just did something to him. And our doctor in mobile explained it to me by saying like his feet, his legs were the first thing that quit working. Gradually, everything was going to quit working. So there was no physical reason that he couldn't walk, but his brain did not talk to his feet and legs and tell them to move. Before he got completely bedridden, we would stand him up, someone on each side holding him up, and he would stare down at his feet like, why are you not moving? Yeah, And, and try so hard for them to move, and they just wouldn't. And so then it gradually worked its way up, and he he lost good control of his hands. You know, he couldn't feed himself anymore. We were having to feed him. So he was in the hospital bed for quite a while at home with us taking care of him there. And then as he began to have trouble swallowing, it's when it got real scary for me, because when he would seem like he was choking, I knew that I could not... Um, 
take care of him if something like that happened. Because he was still a pretty big man and outweighed me a good bit. I knew that him being at home and me trying to take care of him was not the best thing anymore. So he did go into a nursing home for the for the last few years and was was um very much a baby, very much a child. When when you're seeing that, is that was that and I think God would say it's okay to do this. Mm-hmm. But was there ever a time where you really began to question how a loving God could allow a thing like this to happen um, or lash out or, or, yes. or get really ticked off about the whole thing. Actually, my question to God was, why didn't he die? And that may sound terrible, yeah. but if he had just died in the nine months or the year, I would not have had to watch him go through that. And the children would not have had to watch him go through that. And he wouldn't have had to go through that. He would be in glory in heaven with Jesus and be healthy and be whole. And I would have the peace of knowing that I'm going to see him again. And here we were year after year after year after year. And it was just dragging on and dragging on and dragging on. And my question was why? Because there was never, I mean, anything with God, all things are possible. Correct. It is highly unlikely with glioblastoma that after a certain place and, and now with a retrogression. Correct. That that's going to, so he, he's going right. to, he's going to get up one day and it's all over. Right. I mean, you know how this is going to play I do out. know how this is going to end. Yes, I do. I just don't know when. And it was, it was so hard. I, I can't tell you. I can't, I can't make you understand it. How long was it? Um, Ken lived 22 years. I bet he got the record. I, I think he might have. Well, I'll have to look that up one day. <laughs> um, he, we were married on July 9th. He was diagnosed on the week of our 10-year anniversary, and he died on our 32nd anniversary. Exactly 32 years. Hmm. I mean, you can't come out on the other side of a 22-year experience like that anywhere remotely close to the person that you were entering that. Not even close. How are you different? I, I would almost say much more relaxed. And I know that may sound strange. And, and my kids and my best friends, they laugh at me because when they're telling me problems that they have or the, the, the girls are complaining about something, my response to them is always, it's going to be okay. It is going to be okay. And I know that now without a shadow of a doubt. Anything that happens from now on, God has got me. God is in control. It's all a part of his plan. And it's going to be okay. It may not be what I want. It may not be what they want, but it's going to be okay. And so I I just still have that peace of knowing that all of this was for a reason and anything that happens from now on is for a reason. And and it's just going to be okay. But people would say and people expect 
that when they say, I trust God because I know everything works together for good and it's all going to be okay. I feel like most people are saying that with this belief that this circumstance is going to turn out the way they want it to turn out. Oh, no. <laughs> so the question is, how in the world can you say it's going to be okay when you just went through something that, that you just went through for 22 years, watched what you watch, and he died? And I think that's the definition of faith. Um, I mean, I, I can't explain it other than knowing that God has given me peace and, and God is in control and... It just is. If you can have peace in your heart and faith in God, where you are today, he passed in July, a year and a half ago? No. Six months ago? Eight months ago? Uh, eight or nine, yeah. Yeah. It didn't turn out. No, it did not. In fact, it not only did it not turn out, the whole circumstance has been very painful was far worse yes than it probably should have been that that first night that i looked up at god and said i can't raise my children by myself and i said he he thought well you just wait not only did i go through most of their lives literally being a single parent because ken was not of the mentality to help me with decisions about them um not only did i raise them but i took care of him and and there's no way I could have done that on my own. None whatsoever. Um, I, I held on to the phrase, grace sufficient for today. God gives me grace sufficient for today. I would go to bed at night and just literally cry out and say, God, I cannot do this again tomorrow. But you know what? I got up and I did it again tomorrow. I did. But that was only through his strength and only through his grace. And if he got me through those last 22 years, as bad as they were, he's going to get me through whatever comes next. And I, ju- and I just know that. I have the faith to believe that. Well, for the circumstance to have progressed the way it did and in the way it did, and for you to get on the other side of that and tell people, hey, it's going to be okay. I feel like I can believe that better than maybe I could if if someone had it work out right. exactly the way they prayed. It's like God is faithful, right? Yeah. He, he answered my prayers. It's easy to say when it works out. It is. Well, like I said, I did. This did not happen overnight. I did not wake up <laughs> no. and say one day, "Oh, it's fine." This this was a long, hard process. But like I said, God's been faithful through all of it. We got to learn that. Yeah, we got to learn that God is not a um, wish list answer vending machine. Correct. And that if he doesn't answer prayer, well, then that means God doesn't exist. If, if, if you've gone through this, and I know that other people have had horrible things, um, that the specific prayers they asked didn't come to, to be. We've got to get to a place in our faith where 
if our list doesn't get com- checked off and completed, that our faith is just as strong, if not stronger, and our understanding and belief in God and His providence and Him taking care of us, we got to be able to believe in God when it doesn't turn out like we want it to. Right. Um, and I, I thought about a song on the way here. You know, I had a two and a half hour drive to think about this on the way to get here tonight. And we sing a song a lot in a lot of churches. It says, um, you are my all in all. And I think because it's a song, all in all comes out like one word. You are my all in all. It's not one word. It's three. You are my all in all. So if God is your all, then let him be in control of all of it. And, and like I said, that's super hard to do because we like to be in control. And that's why the prayer life is constant, reading the Bible differently, and looking for an answer. Not just reading it, but looking for an answer. That allows me to know that he is in control of all of it. And I don't have to worry about it. I really don't. Um, You know, I'm still fairly young. Am I going to have some more things in my life that I don't like and that I don't plan? Probably. Most likely. But I know he's in control of all of it. And (laughs) at the risk of sounding redundant, it's going to be okay. Are you seeing anything at this early stage after sort of this whole thing uh, ended last year? Are you seeing anything now that is fruit that's come from this? It's easy to look back and say, oh, that's what God was doing. And, you know, at the time, I didn't like it at all. I feel like he's made me much stronger. He's made me much more willing to share. Um, I never would have done this podcast or been able to talk publicly about everything. Um, And the Bible is filled with people and examples of people who went through something. And I'm sure it was not enjoyable to them at the time, but we can see through the Bible how it was used generations later. Yeah. And I, you know, maybe God's going to do something wonderful with one of my grandchildren because my daughters are going to tell the story, you know, and somehow it's going to be used. It's way bigger than me. It's way bigger than Ken. Um, You know, God's design for everybody is way bigger than me and Ken. You know, and I think people who don't believe think that's a cop-out. Oh, no. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I think they say, <laughs> yeah, well, it's, sure, it, nothing turned out the way you want, and you just think, well, maybe it's going to happen, you know, decades later. But if you look over history, not just in Scripture, but in history, the things that, if they didn't happen the way they happened, something far down the line, right. maybe generations mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. doesn't happen that is crucial. And as believers, we got to trust that. If we serve a God 
that is infinite in his intelligence. And we get ticked off because something that happens in a microcosm of time doesn't turn out the way we want to. How short-sighted are we if we can't see or at least understand that his ways are so much bigger than our ways? He tells us that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like, hey, man, just believe me on this. Right. I see things that you cannot see. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite books of the Bible is Esther. Yeah. Absolutely love reading, rereading that whole book. And, you know, she was orphaned. I'm sure if she had had her choice, she would not have been orphaned, having been raised by an uncle. You know, that that's not fun. And, you know, she would not have chosen that for herself. But because she was, she ended up in in a place that God said, you are here for such a time as this. And ended up through her, a whole nation of people were saved. Well, she couldn't have known that, but she just had to be obedient. Not just any nation. (laughs) (laughs) The nation, right? Yes. (laughs) The important nation. That's right. And so, you know, I, I don't know what's coming in the future. I don't. But God does. And so I just have to have faith that he put me here for such a time as this. And I just tried to be faithful. And he's got my children in their generation for such a time as this. And I hope they have the firm foundation to be faithful. And I hope it continues on to my grandchildren. I don't know. But I do know that that Ken and I were given a difficult situation in our opinion. But like I said, it didn't surprise God at all. He knew how it was going to turn out. He knows what he's going to use it for. And... I have to know that I was here for such a time as this, and I did my best to be faithful. This is very powerful to me because the ability to just try to grasp something greater than the right now, we can't bail on our faith because it's not turning out the way we wanted it to. There are people that do that, and I, we all do it at some time, I feel like. But if we could just be less short-sighted and think more eternally and remain faithful. I mean, heck, that's 22 years of hell on earth at times. Absolutely. To watch that. Mm-hmm. Not just to have to watch it, but have to live it. Right. There's no relief from that. You didn't get a sabbatical. Neither did his, your daughters. Neither did he. He didn't get a break. He had to live it. Neither did his family. 22 years. Most adversity is temporary, and, and this was too, but that's a long temporary. It's a very long time. And I reminded God of that occasionally. Like I, I said, I had, my, I had my bad days, and I'd say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but you're taking a long time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Yeah. So what is your message at this point? I mean, I, you got a life ahead of you, and you got who na- knows how things are going to unfold from here, not just generations from now, but in the next 30 years, right? You've got, yeah. you got that plus some in, in our day and age, so you got a long time to go. And, um, but to this point, what you've just 
gone through and experienced. And as you begin to look on the horizon, if God were going to take you in a year and you had to say, everybody, this is what I learned. What is it? Put down your clothes basket. When you're trying to carry something that is way too heavy, just put down that laundry basket. Put down whatever it is and give it to God and let Him be in control and not you. And when you stand up from saying that prayer and you put that laundry basket down, don't pick it up again. Leave it there. Leave it with God. Let Him handle it. And you just do every day faithfully, and He will take care of it. Did you ever see God in this situation? Yeah. Um, I saw God every day. Every day. With the people that He would send into our lives, the people that came and cut our grass, the people that brought food, the the people that would say, hey, let me sit with Ken a minute, and you just go go out for a drive. Um, and, and it, what amazed me was like you said, it was 22 years. It was 22 years of an issue and nobody forgot us. You know, it's easy to be there for somebody immediately right after the diagnosis and take care of them. But then everybody goes home and you're stuck and you're, you feel like you're by yourself. I never had that problem. There was always somebody calling, texting, um, coming by, let me do this for you. Let me clean your floor. Let me do your laundry. And and it was just constant. And I wrote an article in our local newspaper one time and said, you know, there are angels among us. There are angels that donate money. There are angels that make cakes and casseroles. There are angels that cut grass and trim hedges. And, and they're around us every day. And God used people in a mighty way through the whole entire 22 years. People never forgot. They constantly took care of us. And I, and I can't stress that enough. If God's leading you to do something for someone, um, step out and do it. Just step out and do it. It may make you uncomfortable, but you never know what it's going to do for someone else. So, yeah, I saw him every day. When I ask that question sometimes in different formats, you know, people will answer um, in a remarkable a coincidence, right? It'd be like, you know, I needed something to happen and this giant thing happened. Or um, I really feel like he just one day flat out spoke to me. And all those things are good and real. But we live a spiritual life. And when you take time to be still and look, you see him in the little places. Yes. And for you, I'm sure there were probably some bigger things too. But the thing that you immediately went to were here and here and here in little places and and, and his presence showing up um, when you needed it and and but just all the time. I think that's really powerful. And if we 
understand that we live a spiritual life. Everything is spiritual. People don't show up on accident. Right. Angels don't appear in a coincidence. Right. Those are all gifts from God. Those are all Him being present in our lives. We're just too skeptical to see that or mm-hmm. too busy, one. Mm-hmm. But it's great that what you said when I asked you if you saw God through this situation, you saw him in the details, in mm-hmm. the little things. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, um, I think that's really powerful and a re- really powerful truth. I, I didn't know much about this story. It was only a few years ago. I think I realized that, uh, you know, I saw a picture. And I was like, that's not Ken, mm-hmm. you know, but if I look really hard and really close, I was like, I, I, I see him in there but that's not ken right right so i didn't know a lot of details about it even until this conversation but what stands out to me is is god's presence is your faithful faithfulness and is ken's faith i i don't know how he was spiritually i do know that when we talked before you mentioned that as you were dating you guys came together spiritually. Yes. Now, college kids dating, <laughs> that's, the, that's the really one of the last things that might be on their, on their minds, right? But you had a conversation. He came and said yes. that what you have, I want to know. Yes. He was raised, like I said, just in a small town, just not far from my small town. And he had gone to church. He had not gone so much so that he would, I would say that he went regularly. They did go, but, and and he was aware of a lot of things, but it, it wasn't real to him. And as we were dating, I would talk about my church and my, you know, my beliefs. And, and I asked him to pray one night before we went out because my granny always said, don't date anybody that won't pray with you. So. <laughs> Um, That's good advice. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, he did. He was game. But he, I, I guess he saw it in my life. And, and he just looked at me one day, one night, and he said, I don't have what you have. And at first I was like, what do you mean? And so he told me. He said, he said that relationship, I don't have that. And so we talked about it. And, and he prayed that night on his knees in his dorm room beside the dirty old dorm bed and um, asked Jesus to, to be the Lord of his life. And, you know, I look back on that as well. And I think, you know, I'm so glad that happened because we didn't know what was coming. We didn't know that he was also going to need that firm foundation. And um, he, like I said, he was very analytical and, and he wanted to come back and talk to some deacons in our church and that sort of thing and make sure, you know, everything was, right in his head because you know he he was just that kind of guy and um was baptized shortly thereafter and that's why i guess that may be another reason that i have peace because i know where he is and i know where i'm going so you know i'm I'm catch up with him yeah but you guys laid that foundation yes together yes together Mm -hmm. it clearly is i had major impact on how this thing was handled from the start absolutely and his ability to be cool under pressure, mm-hmm. the pressure of his life. 
Yes. It was it was the ball game to end all ball games. Because, you know, like I said, he, he, he loved to compete. And, and he was in this one for the fight of his life. What a story. And what a testament to uh, faith. You know, faith. We talk about faith. And Jesus reminds us how little we have. And we tend to have faith when faith works in our favor. Or when we're unsure and, and we hope that faith works in our favor, like if we need to get a job or meet the right person or be healed of disease. And uh, we have faith in God that he's going to do that. We just need to have faith in God. Absolutely. Well, there is one other time that someone else saw an angel. Uh, uh, There's another little side story to Ken's everything else that he went through. In um, 1999, shortly into our trips to MD Anderson, uh, a local friend had his own personal plane and offered to fly us to Houston so that would save us, you know, money for another trip. And, of course, we jumped at the idea. And um, his dad decided to fly with him and allow me to stay home with the kids that for that trip. So it was those men in their that little private plane and he got up above the pine trees but then it stalled and they had to try to turn around and land back again but they didn't quite make it and they went down into the trees at the end of the runway so they literally had to call me and tell me my precious husband had been in a plane crash (laughs) and I said okay (laughs) let me take a breath (laughs) and um I did call him and he said he said, we're good. He said, you know, dad had a cut and he had broken his sunglasses. I said, I'll get you some more. And um, I said, well, do I need to come home? And he said, no, we're showering and we're going to get on another plane and head on out to keep my appointment. I said, you're going to get on another plane? And he said, what are the odds we'll crash twice in one day? I said, well, Got me there. So they went on, and he, he had his appointments at MD Anderson. But the point about the the um, angel, the pilot talked to us later, and he said, you're going to think I'm crazy. I said, nope. At this point, I do <laughs> not think anything is crazy. Yeah. I don't. And he said, well, when I realized we were going down, He said, I turned around to look at Ken and his dad and tell them that we were about to go down. He said, there was an angel in the cockpit with us. And I said, I don't think you're crazy at all. What do you mean? He literally saw what he pictured to be an angel. A physical presence. He literally thinks he saw a physical presence that was with them in the cockpit. You know, there's an accident report for plane crashes, just like there are for automobile accidents. And so they determined that because the plane went down through the tops of the pine trees, the top of the pine tree split the gas tank, like sliced it open. And so all of the gas leaked out before they hit. And then the nose of the plane landed in a very small creek. And so it was wet. And said for those two reasons was the only reason that it didn't explode or burn. And so, you know, that was one of those, ooh, that's a miracle. 
But, you know, I, I don't believe in chance anymore. I don't believe things happened just out of the blue. Um, you know, God knew that that pine tree was going to slice open that tank and all that gas was going to fill out, spill out. And then we're going to land it right here in this five feet of water in the whole area. And and they're going to be protected. And then the pilot tells me that he really feels like he saw a presence with them in the cockpit. And I, I, I don't doubt him at all. We live in a spiritual world. We do. We flat out do. And I hear stories like that. And I know skeptical, you know, skeptics hear that and say, come on, give me a break, man. Come on. Right. That's pr- there's a couple of lucky things that happened there. And don't give me this business about seeing mm-hmm. some presence there. Right. But it's just happened too many times. <laughs> and it's not crazy people doing I mean, it's no, just happened too no, many times. These were normal people. Spiritual encounters have happened too many times. We know that life is eternal. We know that heaven is um, some dimension outside of where we exist right now. There's been too many things that have happened. And so um, I don't shrug that off as some sort of mumbo jumbo. I I flat out believe that God sliced that gas tank open. I do too. Well, perspective on that is, um, is really powerful. And all the things that he was growing up and they all added up to the person he needed to be when it got to that time. Yes. He led in a time where you needed and the family needed and his daughters needed, um, stability and, Mm -hmm. and a perspective of, of hope in a hopeless situation. Yes. And you guys have reflected that in all the descriptions of this that we've gone through. How you can have hope in um, in that circumstance is beyond the, the comprehension of most people. And it can only come from God. Correct. And it, it appears that your hope still exists. Yes. And your hope is eternal rather than in this finite and flawed world. And he led in that effort, and you are carrying it on, and so are your daughters. It sounds like yes, they are they are wonderful, caring people, and God blessed us with two young men to love them and marry them, take care of them, Christian young men, and their in law families love them, and I I just could not be more thankful. And feel so blessed that that God has given them that in their lives to start their lives on with their husbands. So I I feel truly blessed. I would have to say that this story is a long, long way from being over. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I said, I don't know what's coming next, but it's going to be okay. Yeah. (laughs) And there's reasons to be hopeful. That's for sure. Wow, um, what a powerful day, and uh, what a powerful story, and I love the tribute to Ken Higginbotham, and um, taking that to be an example, what he put on himself, and what he lived through with everything 
that went all the way to the end yes. um, to be an example uh, for others, I believe, is what he has done. And uh, that legacy is nothing short of heroic, I think, and faithful, more importantly. And um, I'm proud to have known him, and I'm proud to know you. And Thank you. the way that God has moved in your lives and the way you hold up your faith in God. Thank you for the opportunity to share it with everyone. I'd love to be able to say that my faith in God would be stronger after enduring 22 years of watching my spouse, parent, or child suffer a continuous but painfully slow decline, leading to their death that I could do nothing about, even through the most intense prayer. The Higginbotham family did just that. I believe, Shan, when she says that her faith in God is stronger because she knows that it was God who walked the entire distance with them and that only He could bring them out on the other side. Sometimes the worst happens, even to the faithful. Shan Higginbotham would say that if we'll lay our foundation in the only thing that remains stable in the worst of storms, we will not only endure, but rest in the joy that can only come from the peace of our Heavenly Father. Thank you for joining us today on A Stronger Faith. If you want to help us, consider sharing your own faith-shaping experience or connecting us to someone with a great faith-shaping story. You can do that with a simple email to connect at astrongerfaith.com or with a message on Facebook or Instagram. You can also help us by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite player. Good reviews and ratings help these stories reach more people, and that's exactly what we pray God does with these stories. Until next time, I pray for peace and a stronger faith for you and those you love.